What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Thursday, September 7th, 2023. Uh, we're very fortunate today to have as our guest Professor Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University. He is a world-renowned and much-honored scholar. He is an expert in the field of the movement of geopolitical forces around the world, and historically, he has written extensively on the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, and he's kind enough to join us now. Uh, I'm envious because when I was an undergraduate at Princeton University, we were not so fortunate as the students at Columbia University are today to have someone like Professor Sachs on the faculty. Professor Sachs, thank you very much for joining us. It is so good to be with you. I'm absolutely delighted. Thank you. Can you, uh, I'll let you lecture for a minute or two. Can you give us the basic background starting in uh, 1990? Uh, when Germany, the United States, and Russia agreed that NATO would not move one inch further east, take us to Minsk One and Minsk Two, and take us to uh, the coup in 2014, largely engineered and orchestrated by the American State Department. Well, you've uh, touched on all the main points that led to this war. Uh, I actually go back to uh, the late 80s and early 90s because President Gorbachev asked me to help his economic team. President Yeltsin asked me to help his economic team. President Kuchma, the first president of independent Ukraine, asked me to help his economic team. So I've watched this close up. Uh, look, it was very straightforward. Uh, Gorbachev was a, a man of peace. He said uh, that uh, Soviet Union will end the Warsaw Pact military alliance. And uh, the U.S. and Germany were very explicit. Uh, this is James Baker, Hans Dietrich Genscher, the foreign minister of Germany. We will not move NATO one inch eastward. Of course, it was a lie. Uh, it was a lie because as soon as the Soviet Union ended and Russia became the, the continuation state or the successor state, as it's sometimes called, uh, the United States immediately within uh, even uh, Bush one uh, was calculating, OK, how do we expand NATO? We won. They lost. We expand. Promises, uh, commitments don't mean anything. And already our diplomats, the senior diplomats, Jack Matlock, uh, U.S. ambassador uh, to Russia, uh, of course, George Kennan, perhaps the greatest uh, historian scholar of our time and uh, the original author of uh, containment in 1947 said this is a terrible idea don't break 
the peace with Russia right away. Bill Clinton's uh, Secretary of uh, Defense, uh, William Cohen, uh, no, I'm sorry, Bill Perry uh, at, at the time said, uh, don't do this. And he thought about resigning. But, you know, Clinton, uh, he didn't think very hard about it. The uh, security state said, just move right on in. NATO expansion started. We know from Zbig Brzezinski in 1997 that the game plan was already clear, the timeline, to go all the way to Ukraine and further to Georgia. And if you look at a map, Georgia ain't a North Atlantic country <laughs> by any means in the Caucasus. Let, let me just uh, let me just stop you right here. Sure. Uh, you you are not saying that Jim Baker and George H. W. Bush changed their minds. You are not saying that events caused them to rethink this. You are saying that they knowingly deceived Mikhail Gorbachev. No, I'm not sure about that. What was clear in the Bush administration was a division between Baker, who was a really a, a pretty pragmatic guy, uh, I think a very effective guy in a lot of ways, uh, and uh, the hardliners, uh, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Cheney, who would invent the neocon uh, era, in fact. And so I'm not sure that they knowingly lied in 90. They were giddy, though, giddy. My God, we are winning. We're going to take all the pieces. But it was really, it, it was really in 92, uh, in, uh, after the December end of the Soviet Union in 1991. I happened to be in the room when it happened, as they say. Uh, actually, I was sitting in the room in the Kremlin when uh, uh, President Yeltsin walked across the room, sat down directly in front of me and said, gentlemen, to, to this assembly of economists, I can announce the end of the Soviet Union. It was a rather astounding moment. But then, as soon as that happened, I think uh, Wolfowitz, uh, Cheney, Rumsfeld went into overdrive. Uh, it was a very strange last year of the Bush one administration. Clinton, I don't think, ever knew what he was doing in foreign policy, uh, probably until today, in my own opinion. But in any how, event, we how does how immediately. Does you, how does Ukraine... Uh, answer this assorted history? I think Ukraine enters from a, an old proposition going back to the Crimean War of the middle of the 19th century, which is if you can surround Russia in the Black Sea, you've really ended Russian power. And this was very clear uh, to Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, in his global chessboard of 1997. He said that uh, Ukraine was the geographic pivot of Eurasia. And you look at a map. What was the idea? The idea was that U.S. military forces would be in Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Georgia. And you look at the map, Sevastopol, the Russian base since 1783, is right there, and then it's cornered. And the Russians knew this, and they were saying from the early 90s, don't do this. And then when it started to become apparent that doing this meant not only Poland, Hungary, and Czech Republic, which they swallowed hard on, but those are Central European states after all, when right. they saw that this is NATO coming to their borders, and in 2007 that meant the three uh, Baltic states, Latvia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, it meant two Black Sea countries, Romania and Bulgaria, and it meant the Balkan states, uh, Slovenia and uh, also Slovakia. 
They said in 2007, my God, don't do anything more. And that's when uh, President Putin at the Munich Security Conference really laid it out very clearly. He said, look, you guys promised in 1991, not one inch eastward, all you're doing is threatening a new conflict stop. Well, I think the defining feature of American foreign policy is arrogance, and they can't listen. They cannot hear red lines of any other country. They don't believe they exist. The only red lines are American red lines. Before we we get to the uh, impetus behind this arrogance in American foreign policy, and before you tell us about the harm uh, caused by the uh, by the neocons, uh, bring us into uh, 2004 and 2014 in Ukraine. 2004 was uh, uh, called the Orange Revolution. It was a contested election. Uh, the United States played a strong role in contesting the election, and American funded. Uh, Ukrainian so-called civil society institutions played a role and the election was overturned and uh, the pro-U.S. candidate, Viktor Yushchenko, won a rerun of the election. And he called for NATO enlargement. Uh, But he uh, lasted one term and in the rerun of the competition between Yushchenko and and, Yanukovych. Yanukovych, excuse me, uh, and uh, President Yanukovych. Yanukovych won the next round very handily, by the way. Uh, and so Yanukovych came in in 2010, 2011, 2012, saying, look, the U.S. in 2008 at the Bucharest NATO summit said NATO will enlarge to Ukraine. And Yanukovych said, no, no, please, please. We are in between We will be neutral, thank you. It was extremely prudent. This is the key to understand. Prudence. Careful. When you're on Russia's border, be careful. When you're in between the uh, Western uh, nuclear superpower, the the, uh, Russian uh, nuclear superpower, be careful. And Yanukovych tried to be careful. He really did try with skill to be careful. He knew the country was divided divided ethnically, divided about its beliefs about the future, divided economically. And so he tried to do things to tamp down this U.S. neocon push for NATO enlargement. One of the key things he did was to say to the Russians, look, you can have a long-term lease on your Sevastopol naval base. Yes, it has been your naval base since 1783, and we're not going to tamper with it. Very smart. He said, we will be neutral. This was a big majority backing him at the time. And what well, happens it, What happens to him? What does the U.S. State Department do about this at or about 2014? Well, at the end of 2013, things got uh, very complicated uh, because uh, the Europeans were pushing hard for a roadmap to Ukrainian membership in the EU, which unfortunately has become completely entwined with membership in NATO. And on the other hand, uh, Ukraine was in financial crisis. The IMF was doing its usual twisting, (laughs) twisting the knot as tight as possible. Uh, President Putin was saying, you can't make an agreement on free trade 
with Europe without including us. We are a free trade partner with you. We need to discuss this too. Yanukovych said, okay, we'll delay signing with the EU. Protests broke out and the U.S. saw its moment. We can stoke these protests. Okay, John McCain will go over there. Lindsey Graham will go over there. Victoria Nuland will nonstop shuttle uh, to uh, Kiev. We can even, you know, overthrow this government that is calling for neutrality. And it's pretty clear in early 2014 that regime change uh, and a typical kind of U.S. covert regime change operation was underway. And I say typical because scholarly studies have shown that just during the Cold War period alone, there were 64 U.S. regime, covert regime change operations. This is an, wow. it's astounding. A serious scholarship has devoted its time to tracing all the times the U.S. overthrows or tries to overthrow other governments. Well, right. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So no the, doubt. US, the U.S. overthrows uh, Yanukovych. He's replaced by somebody sympathetic to the West. Uh, Let me tell got- you, uh, just, just to say, uh, in, uh, in this overthrow, and Victoria Nuland, who was then the Assistant Secretary of State uh, for uh, Obama, now is our Deputy Secretary of State. She was mm-hmm. the point person in the U.S. engagement in the overthrow of Yanukovych. And in an incredible excerpted phone call, Russians probably uh, uh, were able to tap into the call between Newland and the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Piat, uh, she described forming the new government. And she also described something uh, absolutely remarkable, which is, OK, we're going to get the beep, the big guy, Biden, uh, to uh, come in and do his attaboys and uh, make everything work out well. And who was uh, engaged Uh, With her on that, Jake Sullivan, who at the time was the vice president's national security advisor. So we've seen this. We've seen this Mm. team continuously operating since 2014. Biden's been absolutely part of this since then and before, because he always was pushing NATO enlargement. So what we had was a Russophobic government come in. Uh, a lot of right-wing elements, extreme nationalist elements come in. Uh, immediately, Putin said, you're not taking Crimea for a, a NATO naval base. And, uh, and uh, Putin organized that referendum in a completely Russian 
uh, ethnic uh, uh, part of, uh, uh, of uh, the region in Crimea and said, now Crimea is part of uh, Russia. And we know that two breakaway regions uh, in the Donbass in eastern uh, Ukraine uh, were basically military parts of the Ukrainian army that did not want uh, to succumb to a Russophobic regime now installed in Kiev. Are so those fight- the parts of are those the parts of Ukraine, Professor Sachs, that the current uh, regime in Kiev has been shelling and shooting at its own people? Well, as soon as these breakaway republics broke away and taking some of the armaments with them to defend uh, these new breakaway regions, which were demanding autonomy, by the way, that's what they were demanding. They were demanding the use of the Russian language, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, the uh, relations with Russia, the family relations, the travel, the open borders, and so forth. The war began with uh, essentially right-wing militaries like the Azov Battalion and so forth, Uh, the Banderistas, uh, pretty fascistic uh, ideologies uh, in some cases, attacking in the East. And a lot of people died. Thousands and thousands of people were being killed, civilians, uh, uh, ethnic Russian civilians uh, in in the Donbass. This is before... February of 2022, is oh, it Oh, this already goes back to 2014 and Well, you never saw this on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post. You Incidentally, in 2017, 2018, you saw a lot of stories that Ukraine has a, has a Nazi problem, a lot of uh, Nazi symbols, a, a mm. lot of fascism. Those stories completely disappeared. <laughs> but uh, those stories are actually uh, even searchable online, uh, what, what they were saying back then. But the key point is the following. Uh, Russia said, stop killing ethnic Russian civilians. We need peace. And two agreements were negotiated. And the most important was the Minsk II agreement. And what the Minsk II agreement called for was autonomy for Donetsk and Lugansk for these two breakaway regions, not to become part of Russia, not to become an independent state. Who but, agreed? Who agreed? What what parties, what countries agreed to the Minsk II agreement, Professor Sachs? The government of Ukraine, these two breakaway rep, uh, parts of Ukraine, uh, which uh, signed, and then guarantors of this agreement. And this is fascinating because in Europe, the two guarantors were Germany under then Chancellor Angela Merkel and France under President Hollande originally. And the whole agreement remarkably went to the UN Security Council, where it was also backed 15 to nothing in the UN Security Council. This was a serious agreement. It was never enforced by the Ukrainians. And I can tell you my own experience, knowing many senior Ukrainian officials, I said, look, you've got to... uh, honored the Minsk agreement. They said, no, we're never going to do that. That was, uh, that was done at gunpoint. I said, come on, you signed the agreement. The UN Security Council has endorsed the agreement. This is diplomacy. It's to keep the peace. We're never going to do it. And now we know that no Ukrainian leader had any intention of doing it. 
And then Angela Merkel, uh, just a few months ago, gave a remarkable, very, oh, very disappointing uh, interview where, where she said, yes, we knew it wasn't really going to be uh, agreed or followed, uh, but it gave some time for the Ukrainians to build up their strength. We also can surmise, and again, since our government operates in as much secrecy as they can possibly get away with without whistleblowers uh, and uh, uh, leaks, uh, they absolutely told the Ukrainians, don't worry about a thing. We've got your back. You're going to join NATO. And then to bring it up to the present, when Biden came in, of course, no one knew exactly what this meant, but we could have known because Biden's been part of this story since the overthrow of Yanukovych, and he's been part of the NATO enlargement story for even longer than that, so we should have known. But some of us had some hope that there would be some rationality in this process, and Biden instead absolutely doubled down. Ukraine mm. will be part of NATO. We will increase the armaments, the 2021 NATO summit enforce this again. The United States in the first year of the Biden administration signed two high level agreements with the Ukrainian government, underscoring Ukraine's membership in NATO, one with the State Department, one with the Defense Department. Now, at the end of 2021, on December 17th, President Putin put forward a draft security agreement between Russia and the United States. I read it. I thought, you know what? Absolutely negotiable. Not everything is going to be accepted, but the core of this is NATO should stop the enlargement so we don't have a war. And I called the White House at the end of 2021 when uh, somebody was still talking to me. Uh, and uh, I had a long talk and I said, avoid this war this war is avoidable. You don't want a war on your watch. Oh, no, 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 no. NATO doesn't mean anything. Blah, blah. I said, if NATO doesn't mean anything, announce it's not going to happen. No, no, we have an open door policy. I said, that's no policy. That's a path to war. And you know it. You've got to negotiate. Click. So that phone call, uh, as uh, <laughs> so many in my career, uh, didn't do anything except wow. to tell me my God, these people do not understand anything about diplomacy, anything about reality. Their own diplomats have been telling them for 30 years, this is a path to war. Our current CIA director, William Burns, very bright chap, sent a famous uh, message to Condoleezza Rice in 2008. Of course, we know about it only because of WikiLeaks. Everything is secret in our society. Everything is lies, by the way, in our society, except when things are leaked. But the memo was famously entitled, Niet means Niet. Don't do this NATO thing with Ukraine of all the neuralgic points you could possibly do in your diplomacy. Well, the mm -hmm. Biden people couldn't listen because Newland and Blinken and Sullivan and Biden have been in it up to their necks since 2014, completely irresponsibly, in my view. And on February 21st, 2022, there's an extraordinary Russian Security Council meeting. It's extraordinary because we can read online the minutes of the meeting. And President Putin calls on uh, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Uh, minister Lavrov, please report on your 
negotiations uh, over our proposed security arrangements. And Lavrov says, Mr. President, uh, we have failed uh, entirely because uh, the United States has uh, declared uh, unequivocally uh, that uh, NATO enlargement is not our business and that there is nothing to discuss about it. And of course, uh, Putin gave his address to the nation and explained uh, that Russian national security was uh, at deep risk and uh, the special military operation started February uh, 24. Now, what's absolutely interesting in all of this is that within a few days, within a few days, Zelensky starts saying publicly, you know, we, we could be neutral. You know, we don't really have to be part of mm. NATO. This starts within a few days. This was this was the essence of what Russia was trying to do, not to conquer Kiev. It was trying to push a settlement of this security issue. And Zelensky well, said was it. There, was there a reduced to writing but never ratified settlement in March of 2022? There indeed was. And I have had the chance to speak with several very, very senior people that were involved in this. And uh, one thing that's extremely interesting, when Zelensky made his statements, uh, President Putin said to his top aides, well, okay, uh, see what this is about. And uh, Ukraine actually put something uh, on paper as a first draft. And uh, the uh, Russian uh, leadership looked at it, sent it on to Putin. And President Putin said, okay, draft an agreement, uh, draft a draft agreement. They were actually negotiating and they were negotiating in Ankara under a very skilled diplomatic corps. Of is, this, is this the negotiation with the then prime minister of Israel as well as diplomats from Turkey? Yes. Let me guess who disrupted this agreement. The U.S. State Department. Naftali Bennett is hilarious, by the way, because you don't see prime ministers talking this way. He gave a five-hour interview where he explained his life. He told us lots of fascinating things. And one of the things he explained to us was how interesting it was. He suddenly found himself as intermediary of Putin and Zelensky and Biden and Schultz. And yeah, it was very exciting. And uh, they were working on the seventh draft and they were making progress. They were coming close to signing. And then uh, and then Naftali Bennett explains in this wonderful interview, quite remarkable, he says, then they stopped it. They stopped it. Uh, and uh, he says the Americans stopped it. And he actually explains, by the way, they stopped it because they wanted to look tough to China. They were worried that this mm. could look weak to China. So it's not even a proxy war with Russia. It's all, all about China in this crazy, crazy, topsy-turvy, weird failure of diplomacy. And then, of course, after Bennett says this and everyone's shocked, he walks it back. No, 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 I didn't say that. I didn't mean it. Because that's the other way that our world works is when a little bit of truth leaks out, you deny it, even though it's in front of your eyes, even though you could play the tapes again and again. So the Professors. United States stopped the diplomacy and Ukraine has been the victim and I would say, of course, its leadership doesn't represent the interests of the Ukrainian people, in my view, at all, because this has been a bloodbath since then, a tragic, predictable bloodbath. And all of the shows you've had, Judge, 
uh, with Scott Ritter uh, and with Douglas McGregor have explained all along why this is going to be a bloodbath. I, I know the economic side that the sanctions weren't going to work. I understood the diplomatic side. I didn't know the, the, the military side. But this has been a predictable bloodbath. And the Americans have known it. And even this vaunted counteroffensive of the last uh, three months, they knew this wasn't going to work. But, you know, Biden, oh, he's running for re-election. Uh, Zelensky, he's uh, dug into this. So we have this terrible, terrible phenomenon of the interests of the world being staked on the interests of a few politicians. This is completely right. upside down. Wow. What, what a, an extraordinary, remarkable, gifted, no notes in your hands, uh, lecture uh, on all of this. Um, where do you see this going? I mean, Victoria Newland and the neocons who have brought us to this precipice are not going to back down. In my view, they want to they want to use Ukraine as a battering ram for their fanciful view that it can drive President Putin from office. Everything can still happen except that, I'm pretty sure, uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, what will happen on the battlefield. Uh, it could be that uh, after the exhaustion of this Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is exhausted and which has claimed tens of thousands of deaths and so many wounded and massive destruction of uh, the military equipment, the miracle weapon shipped over, could be that Russia launches a major offensive and, and uh, uh, changes completely the situation. This is one, one possibility. Uh, another possibility uh, is uh, that uh, this uh, grinding, continuing, bloody, horrible war continues because a few politicians don't want to admit uh, how wrongheaded, predictably wrongheaded, this whole thing is. There's always the chance also that these completely intemperate and uh, irresponsible people in our government aim to escalate because maybe the situation turns down and they say, oh, this is bad for Biden's reelection, as if we should care. Our politicians work for us. We don't work for them. I never care about a politician's reelection. I care about what they are doing. But if they decide to escalate, we're talking about the world's two largest nuclear superpowers. And never we should put that out of our minds. We shouldn't. We're told, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But, you know, I've been studying this issue also for decades. We should always worry about what intemperate, dangerous, uh, intemperate people in dangerous circumstances can do, how accidents can happen, uh, how we can lose control of events. It's all terribly dangerous. We need a completely new approach to all of this. Predictably so, because you could have known back in 1990 or in 1997 or in 2007 or in 2008 or in 2014 or in 2021 or in 2022. This was a huge, huge blunder of Biden. We need a new approach. Frankly, he needs a new economic, uh, uh, he needs a new foreign policy team. This foreign policy team is so dug in, of course. He's dug into it, too, but he's the president, right. so he needs to hire a new team uh, that uh, knows how to get out of this uh, absolutely catastrophic mess. 
Pro uh, Professor Sachs, I'm, I'm in awe of your knowledge of this. I usually speak a lot more during the show, but far be it from me uh, to uh, interrupt you. We'll call it quits now, but I hope you can come back because I'd oh. like to ask you uh, some more questions. This anytime, a, anytime. Uh, professor, th this has been a brilliant, gifted analysis, consistent with what this program has stood for, consistent with the military side of this from Colonel McGregor and Scott Ritter, consistent with the intelligence side of this from Larry Johnson uh, and Ray McGovern. And all Judge, of these you, people you are have fans been saying it. You have been saying it straight from the very beginning, and you're the only one in our countries that got it from the start so, so clearly on all of these dimensions. And I just really praise you, and I'm uh, honored to be on your program. We'll do it again uh, soon, uh, Professor Sachs. Thank you very much. Have great a, have a great you. weekend. Thank, Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Well, if you like what you saw, and I suspect you did, help us spread this message. Tell a friend, tell a coworker, tell a family member, like and subscribe, because what do we do here on Judging Freedom? We are looking out for your liberty.